Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And please stand with me to read God's Word. What a privilege we have that God has given us to open up our Bibles and actually read and hear what God says in it. And then to consider its implications in our lives as, uh, as God speaks to us through His Word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted, because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through it. We pray, Lord, that you would change us today and uh, make us more the people you want us to be. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me start off with a qualifying statement. Jesus Christ is Lord over all, and God has everything under control. But, it's a tough world we live in. We have our share of problems in life. Relationships aren't always easy. Work doesn't always bear fruit. Our health isn't always as good as we would like it to be. Plans don't always succeed. Problems begin to cloud our vision. And we go through periods of happiness as well as sadness. Tragedy strikes and we lose any sense of equilibrium we may have felt. We have got internal issues, we have got external pressures, and they combine to make life challenging and at times discouraging. Life comes with it a whole lot of joy, but also a whole lot of pain. Have you ever been rejected? made to feel less than others, looked down upon, treated as if you were um, devalued. 
Have you ever had someone retaliate against you for some reason? Hurt you? Do evil to you? You witness someone else being treated unjustly? You know, you see evil all around and oftentimes it goes unpunished and you may find yourself thinking, where is the love? Where is the grace? Where is the power of God to stop it? Why doesn't God step in and intervene? Have you ever been going in one direction in life and all of a sudden things change and you find that you have to go where you didn't plan to go due to someone else's choices? That you were, you were uh, redirected by God? If so, you can relate to what Joseph and Mary went through early on in Jesus' life. Because in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, Matthew continues his theme of showing that Jesus is the one the Jews were waiting for. And Jesus is the deliverer the prophets spoke of. There's a characteristic of Matthew's writing that, that is that he uses the Old Testament and prophecies in the Old Testament for apologetic reasons, and he does it very effectively. Already in chapter 2, he has shown that the birthplace of the Messiah, Bethlehem, was foretold in, in Micah 5, verse 2. And now in this passage we're looking at today, we see three things that prophets spoke about. Three things that were painful. But in the midst of that pain, we see God's extreme faithfulness. We see uh, that God gives a reason for hope in the midst of pain. What we see in this passage is Jesus is being taken by his parents out of Bethlehem all the way to Egypt to flee the wrath of Herod. Then you see Herod uh, massacring the children uh, two years old and under in Bethlehem. And then as after Herod dies, you see Jesus' family leaving Egypt and settling in a place called Nazareth. The first thing I want you to consider is, is Joseph taking his family to Egypt. In verse 13, you see that an angel of God appeared to him in a dream. And he says to him, get up. You take the child, you take Mary, and you flee to Egypt. And stay there until I let you know the coast is clear. Go do this. It's interesting that in this redirecting that has taken place of Joseph and Mary and Jesus, what we see in it is the blessing of God's protection. The blessing of God's hand of protection over his own, over his beloved. You know, the benefits of God's hand in our lives and in our families and in the body of Christ is often realized in the midst of changes like this, in the midst of redirecting, of God changing our course. Because in verse 13, we see that God tells Joseph to leave with the family because Herod is going to try and kill Jesus. What this was was a forced road trip. You may not like road trips, but our family loves road trips. In fact, well, you could just say our family does road trips, all right? Uh, we have driven tens of thousands of miles in 17 years of marriage, Angela and I, and, and with our kids as well. In the year 2000, we drove 8,040 miles in six weeks. In 2000, uh, in 2006... We drove uh, over 7,000 miles in four weeks. This past summer, we, we traveled over 5,500 miles in three weeks. 
Now, just in case you think that we're just, just, you know, maniacs when it comes to driving long stretches of highway, we have taken shorter trips, uh, about 4,500 miles apiece in those years in between. So don't start thinking we're just out there or something, okay? Um, But here's the deal. When we would take these trips, we, we chose where we were going. We wanted to go there. We weren't fleeing anything. We weren't running away from anything. But when this angel comes and says to Joseph, get up right now and you get out of town because Herod's going to try to kill Jesus, there was no advanced planning. There was a madman on the loose that was going to try to kill Jesus. This was a get up, get out of town now, and stay there until I tell you the coast is clear. Verse 14 we see that it was so urgent that Joseph got up that very night. It was still dark. And he took, jo- he took Jesus and Mary and went on the 75-mile trip to the border of Egypt. Look at verse 15. This was to fulfill Scripture. Now, he stayed there with the family until after the death of Herod. And it was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Hosea, by the way. It fulfilled Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now in that context, it was referring to the exodus of Israel from Egypt. But here we're talking about God calling his son back out of exile in Egypt. And the blessing was that Jesus' life was spared. That Jesus got to live. He was spared from the wrath of the wicked king Herod. God protected him. God spared his life. God spares our lives. God protects us. God protects us so many times, most of the time we're not even aware. We're completely unaware that our life is being spared. But here you have the Messiah who had come into the world to die, who would die on God's timetable, but not Herod's. You see, this wasn't the time. Now, some did die during this time. Unjustly murdered by a man who hated Jesus so much, he wanted to destroy him. See, that's how it is with those who oppose God's program. They seek to obliterate Jesus. But it's interesting, I think, why people like that get so frustrated is because no matter how hard they try, they can't eliminate God. It's just not possible. You can deny Him, you can deny His Word, but you're still left with so many um, undisputable evidences of His existence. Uh, Look at Romans chapter 1 with me. They're all around. In fact, in the context of of the unbelief and the consequences of unbelief, here's what God says, Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they knew he existed, they're trying to to repudiate that, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, 
and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They were shown to be fools. Because as we saw last week, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. When there is a God. <laughs> so you've got this idea of God protecting his son from the madman Herod. And God used angels. God used a long trip down to Egypt to bring his promised king into, into position when he could have stationed angels all around him. He could have just put a hedge of protection around Jesus and Herod wouldn't have been able to touch him. But what it shows us is that God often uses everyday events to accomplish his will. He does it in our lives. You see, Jesus was spared. But any boy, two years old and under, in Bethlehem, became the objects of Herod's wrath. Here would have been the newspaper headline, Herod kills children. The heinous crime. And he thought the Magi had tricked him. Look at verse 16. He thought the Magi had he'd been tricked by the Magi, so he became very enraged. They, he, they, they, they weren't tricking him. They were obeying God. God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So he committed this shameful deed. It says that he sent, so he gave the word and slew, killed all the baby boys in Jerusalem and its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the Magi, when that star appeared. He, was, he had done the math. He had figured it out. And he was going to make sure that he got his man, or in this case, this young child. So he committed this shameful deed. Now, Bethlehem was not a, a, a big place. It was a small town. You know, a lot of times I think of this, uh, this story and I think, well, th- there must have been thousands of babies killed. But actually, there would probably be between 10 and 30 children killed. It makes it no less heinous of a crime. It's still a mass murder. But see, in those days, Herod's cruelty was proverbial even in Rome. Uh, Herod uh, killed thousands of people. And so this probably wouldn't have made the headlines. Wouldn't have made the papers. Sadly, with Herod's track record of ferocious killings, it wouldn't have attracted much attention. But what this, what this crime clearly showed, what this mass murder clearly shows, is the reality of evil. The reality of evil in the world that's ingrained in humankind due to the fall. Herod was retaliating against the wise men. Herod was raging against God and his anointed, and it was pure evil. His intent was to eliminate the potential threat to his throne. It shows the harsh reality of evil in the world, but it also fulfilled Scripture. This murder also fulfilled Scripture. Now, our holy God did not plan it. He did not purpose it, but he knew it would happen, and he allowed it. He didn't condone it. Look at verse 17. It says, Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. Now, now Matthew pinpoints Jeremiah three times in his gospel. Jeremiah the prophet said this. What did Jeremiah the prophet say? It was in Jeremiah 31, verse 15. That Rachel, 
was weeping for her children. There was a voice heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping. She couldn't even be comforted because of the grief because the children were no more. Now, Jeremiah 31.15 pictures mourning at the prospect of exile and Rachel being the proverbial mother of the Jews was pictured here weeping from her tomb, weeping from the dead for her children or because of her children, the descendants the descendants of Israel were no longer in the land. That was what the weeping there was in context. But here is the fulfillment is seen in that the tears of the exile would end when Messiah would come. That the heir to David's throne had appeared, that the exile was over, the true Son of God had come, bringing in the promises of a new covenant that Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, uh, verses 31 and 34 states, of a new covenant. When God says, I will forgive their sins. When he says that he will not uh, relate to them again on the basis of that sin. Those who come to faith in Christ. But here, the tears are not for those who go into exile. They are for the ones left behind that are killed. For these innocent children that had nothing to do with the situation firsthand. Herod just, can you imagine the picture? Herod's men coming into town and ripping children from their parents, ages two and under, and slaughtering them, whether it was 10 or 20 or 50. It's an unthinkable crime. Herod wasn't the first mass murderer, he wasn't the last. In fact, those who deny the need for Jesus because they think humanity is basically good, need to take a lesson from history. The Holocaust. The killing fields. Sudan. Rwanda. Bosnia. Darfur. 9-11. Saddam Hussein gassing 10,000 of his own people. Sadly, the list is, is seemingly endless. You can go on and on. I can't help but think of the killing of thousands upon thousands of helpless babies in legalized abortion here in America. Just because something's legal doesn't make it right. It's murder. When we say a person has the right over life and death, what we're saying is they can play God. They can play God. When we step in the place that only God can fill, we're on dangerous ground. And that's right where our culture is at. Abortion, across the world, genocide, euthanasia, man dares to have the arrogance to think that, that he can play God. In American pop culture, there aren't too many that will speak the most basic truths about these things because they fear for what people might think. See, real Christianity doesn't toe the party line. Real Christianity transcends culture. It transcends economics and politics and race and any other distinction that man puts up. Real Christianity is radical. Real Christianity is countercultural. Real Christianity is, is, is politically incorrect. See, real Christianity cuts to the core. It gets to the exact truth of the matter 
that every human life is sacred. Every single human life. Sacred in the sight of God, made by God, in His image, for His glory. That's why you and I were made. In His image, for His glory. But then you see rampant evil running wild, unchecked, unrelenting, and it puts us in a, in a very awkward situation because we have trouble reconciling the goodness of God with the evil that we see in the world and the fact that sometimes God doesn't stop evil, that he allows it. And we, have, we ask, why? And why did he protect Jesus and not all the babies that were killed by Herod. The only answer is only God knows. I know this much. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. God always acts in accordance with his character. He does not violate the freedom of humans to choose. There is free will. But you have to ask the question, what is the will free to choose? And outside of Christ, the will is only free to choose what is evil, not what is good. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good apart from Christ. The will is free to choose evil and only in Christ can our wills choose good. That's the biblical fact of the matter. And in this case, God's sovereign plan was for, for the protection of his, of his anointed, of his servant and the future, genera- uh, the future salvation of those who are lost. But then the children were killed because humanity still suffers from the effects of the fall because man chose to disobey. It's a painful reality. Sin is so bad. Grace is so good. We live with that dichotomy every single day. And there's a truth here that's both painful and comforting. That God is good even though mankind is evil. That God is 100% good all the time, 100% of the time. That man is sinful 100% of the time. Total depravity. You know what total depravity means? Total depravity means that we are corrupted radically by sin. That we're radically corrupted by sin. Total de- totally depraved. It doesn't mean utterly depraved. Okay, uh, Utterly depraved means you'd be as bad as you could possibly get. We're totally depraved, which means you're not as bad as you could possibly get. But see, the thing is, we're not as bad as we could possibly get, but sin still permeates our, the core of our life. That no part of us is unaffected. And you know it in your heart, and you see it in the world, and you see it in Scripture over and over again. I keep coming back to 2 Timothy 3.13. This says that evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's going to keep happening. Sin unchecked runs roughshod. But God, we know God brings good even out of evil. 
that he makes even the wrath of man to praise him. And for us, there is a way of escape as well as a comfort in pain. In Jesus, by his life and death and resurrection, is our only hope of being free from sin. Our only hope. And 2 Corinthians 1.4 tells us that God, when we are in Christ, comforts us in all of our affliction so that we can comfort others in their affliction. That when you know Jesus, you receive comfort in time of pain. And in this passage so far, you see God's protection. The blessing that God's protection is. But we also see the reality of evil. And, and in the, 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 the last part of this passage, we see, we see Joseph taking his family to Egypt. Uh, excuse me, from Egypt to Nazareth. And in fact, look at verse 19. Herod had died. So you figure, hey, the coast is clear, right? Uh, Herod had died, so an angel of God appears in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and says, get up, the same words as before, get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. That was true. Herod was dead. But look at verse 21. So Joseph got up, he obeys, and he takes the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But, look at verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. You see, the thing is, when, you know how bad Herod was. Herod didn't kill all his sons. There were three that when he, when he, was, um, when he died, they put three of his sons, not as kings, but more as like sub-rulers in areas. And so Archelaus, his son, was... Uh, was ruling in that area. And Archelaus was a bad leader like his father, and he didn't last long, like a year or two, and that was it. He, year and, one year and out, pretty much. But here's what he did. He began his reign by trying to out-Herod his dad. He took, he took and deliberately slaughtered 3,000 of the leading citizens, the most influential people of the land. And he said, let's get it going. 3,000 people just slaughtered right off the bat. You thought my dad Herod was bad? Wait till you see me. So it was still unsafe to go back to Bethlehem. God knew that, and he was putting Joseph in an interesting situation, but it says here that, that after being warned by a God in a dream, Joseph left for the regions of Galilee. Well, in Galilee, there was a better, a better ruler there. Herod Antipas was reigning. Now look at verse 23. They settled down in Nazareth. Same place that Joseph and Mary used to live. And, and in this scene, we see the truth about rejection. How so? How, how do you see the truth about rejection in this, in this last part, especially the idea of going to Nazareth? Well, it lies in the words in verse 23, he shall be called a Nazarene. Uh, Nazareth was uh, insignificant in, in terms of being a, a, a place. It was unimportant in the eyes of many. You remember in John chapter 1, verse uh, 46, when, when Philip told Nathanael, Philip had met Jesus, he came and told Nathanael, he said, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel's reply was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, this was a man whom Jesus said, 
an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. He was honest, he was uh, fair, he was, he was sincere. And here he was just saying what anyone else would have said. Could anything good come out of that place? Well, Matthew says that the prophet said that he would be a Nazarene. We also see that that's where he grew up, Nazareth. So yes, something good can come out of Nazareth. Uh, but the problem was, uh, the problem is this, is that, that Matthew says, the prophets said, plural, the prophets said he shall be called a Nazarene. The problem is, no prophet said that specific thing. No prophet called him a Nazarene. Um, but what Matthew is, is saying, he's not saying that a specific prophet said that the Messiah would live in Nazareth. What he's saying is that the Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. That what he is doing is he is giving the gist of several Old Testament prophets and passages, not a direct quote. Now, some think it's an allusion to, to uh, uh, Isaiah 11.1, 1, which speak of the, the branch. The Hebrew word for branch is nazer. And it could be Nazarite, Nazareth, nazer. That could be a play on words. It could be an allusion to that. The idea there then would be that the Messiah, in, 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 in Isaiah 11, the Messiah was going to emerge from relative obscurity and, and um, humility and lowliness. And that Jesus was the branch from the royal line of David, raised in a town guaranteed to ensure him scorn. <laughs> that could be it. But the Old Testament prophecies concerning the reproach against the Messiah are summed up in the title Nazarene. In fact, go to Psalm 22 with me. Psalm 22. I'm going to show you in two Psalms, as well as in Isaiah, how this ties in. In Psalm 22 and verse 6. Now, the, the, the context of this psalm, the, 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 the psalmist is, is crying out to God because he's, he's being persecuted. And, 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 but he also, in the psalm, praises God. He comes to a place of praise. But here he's crying out to God, and he says in verse 6, Psalm 22, verse 6. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Shades of Jesus at the cross being mocked. Verse 13, they open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. Then you look over at Psalm 69. Psalm 69, again, a cry of anguish to God from the psalmist. Adversaries coming against him. In verse 8 we read, I have become estranged from my brother's. An alien to my mother's sons. Verse 20. Reproach has broken my heart. I am so sick. I have looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. Verse 21. They gave me gall, poison, for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Again, 
shades of Jesus on the cross. And then go to Psalm 49. Psalm 49, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, in the context of God uh, telling how salvation would reach to the ends of the earth, verse 7 stands out. Isaiah 49, 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes also will bow down because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. You see, he was speaking of the despised one, the one abhorred by the people. You see, to be called a Nazarene was to be thought of as despicable, to be despised. In Acts chapter 24 and verse 5 and Paul was having false charges brought up against him. And here's what they said. They said, this man is a real pest. And he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That was a slam. That was a put down. That was meant to hurt. You see, first first century Christians who were used to being scorned for their faith in Christ would have quickly got the point that Matthew was making. Jesus was the despised servant of the Lord. Yes, he was foretold in Scripture. In fact, Matthew makes some great points about the Gentiles, that they too would believe because Jesus came for Gentiles, and that the Jews, who seemed to be unconcerned, if they wanted a Savior, Jesus was their only option. And then he points out that Jesus is the one that fulfills what was spoken before, a promised deliverer, a promised Messiah, a promised Savior. They would get that, that Jesus was the despised Servant of the Lord, rejected by mankind, looked down upon. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, that was fulfilled when Jesus' contemporaries scornfully called him a prophet from Nazareth. That was a put down, had overtones of contempt. At his cross, Pilate wrote, it's recorded in in John chapter 19, verse 19. He wrote uh, at the top of his cross, of Jesus' cross, Uh, the king of the Jews, Jesus, uh, the Nazarene. That was a put-down. Interesting, those around the cross that didn't agree with who Jesus was says, hey, don't say king of the Jews. You know, the Nazarene thing, that's fine. But don't say king of the Jews. He's not our king. But see, to say the the Nazarene, that was a put-down. They were fine with that. Another slam. See, if he'd been known as Jesus of Bethlehem, oh, that would be royal, you know, regal overtones. It would have conveyed uh, the king uh, being born. As it was, he was associated with Nazareth instead. Despised. Rejected. The longer you follow Jesus, you begin to figure it out. Get it. The closer you follow Jesus, the more you identify with the crucified, risen, and returning Savior. See, the truth about rejection is that when you are rejected, you share in Christ's sufferings. That's how Paul was able to say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. 
that Jesus said the servant must be like his master. So Jesus was persecuted to the nth degree. Don't expect any better treatment. Don't expect any better. So you share in his glory, but you also share, in, as a follower of Jesus, in his pain. And God knows exactly how you feel. Because he's been through it all. Jesus went through it all before you on the cross, but also with you in real time. He carries you through it. And if you desire to live a godly life in Jesus, expect to be persecuted. And what did Jesus say on how to respond? Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who who despise you. And and rest in him who, who experienced that to the fullest. To the fullest extent. It's interesting as you look at this passage that Jesus is not called Jesus in these verses we're looking at today. He is referred to as the child. And pretty much... He's just being carried from one place to another, right? He didn't walk to Egypt. He was like, at this point, he was anywhere from 6 to 20 months old. He was getting carried by Mary and Joseph. See, the, the major players here are Joseph and Herod. The, the, uh, the good, adoptive father and the evil, uh, murderous king. And see, Joseph usually takes a back seat in Scripture. I mean, he, but G, God puts him at center stage here. Uh, Joseph usually is obscure. You don't really see much. He's not here much. So it's easy to miss the depth that is, that is brought out in his life. What a contrast you see between Herod and Joseph. You see Herod's arrogance up against Joseph's humility. You see Herod's evil against Joseph's good. You see Herod ignoring God and Joseph obeying God. Do you realize that every time that God called Joseph, he immediately obeyed? Back in chapter 1, verse 20, He was not going to marry Mary because of the circumstance of her getting pregnant before they got married, right? God says to him, go ahead and marry Mary because uh, the baby is from the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus. This is the promised Messiah. So what's he do? He goes and marries her. Next thing you know, in this chapter, he protects Jesus from Herod trying to kill him by going down to Egypt. Next thing you know, he comes back up and, 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 and... goes to Nazareth. And, and every time God said, go do this, Joseph immediately did it. Now these weren't family vacations that were going on to Egypt and back up to Nazareth. These were, these were uh, forced road trips, but Joseph was taking care of his family as he was called to do by God. I think there's something significant in how God expected Joseph to take care of his family. See, the biblical model is for men to to servant lead in their homes, to be leaders that are servants in their homes. Mary wasn't asked to do it. Joseph was asked to do it, to take the child, take his mother, and go. And protect your family. There's a word for fathers here. The fathers are to spend time in what matters. And that what matters is to engage your family in what is really important. And what is really important is God and his word and prayer and relationships and serving God, and reaching out with the love of Jesus, that's what's important. Take care of your responsibilities, men, because we are called to shepherd our family, not to neglect them, to shepherd our household in God's strength, knowing we can't do it on our own, knowing that we're weak, but still rising up and doing what we're called to do. Carve out time with them. 
to follow Jesus and humbly lead as a servant. It's, it's, a, it's a daunting task. But we have Joseph to look at. You see, Joseph was a lot like another man, uh, someone from the Old Testament, Abraham. Because here's what happened. God called Abraham to leave his homeland and go to a land he'd never been to. He gets up and goes. God asked Abraham to take his only son Isaac and offer him as an offering, and he immediately obeys. Joseph was the same way. Willing to do hard things. Not to take the easiest path or the one that required the least of him, but the, one, the path that required the most. Caused him to reach for the humanly impossible. To trust God to do the impossible. That's what God wants us to do. We know that apart from Jesus, we can't do anything. But we also know that, that in Christ who strengthens us, we can do all things. Sometimes, when you think that things are the darkest, that they couldn't get much worse, that's when the light shines most brightly. When you sense God's presence most fully. When you're unable to move, when you can't do anything on your own, and God does for you what you can't do for yourself. He comforts you and ministers to you and works wonders for you and gives rest for your soul. That's what God does. And even if circumstances don't change, these were bad circumstances we saw here. But even if circumstances don't change, God's presence still lights your way. Because Jesus has promised to be with us always. And we know that God's grace makes uh, beauty out of even the ugliest things. Out of even the, the most horrible situations. We know that God is near to the brokenhearted, That he shows us his extreme faithfulness again and again and again because he is always faithful. That is gospel truth. That we can say thank you Jesus for that. Because everything finds its balance. Everything finds its resting place in, in Jesus Christ. That he is our reason for hope. Even in the darkest night. Even in the bleakest situation. Even in the toughest challenge. See, Jesus wants you to find your stability in him, not the things of earth. That's how Paul could pray in, in Ephesians 1.18 that you may know the hope of of his calling. That his calling on our lives gives us hope. But why we can look at Colossians 1.27 and say, ah, there's my hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ indwelling his people is our hope. So looking back over your life, can you see God's hand of protection guiding you along the way, keeping you from, from harm, can you see the times he allowed something bad to happen? And even in the midst of that happening, showing his extreme faithfulness to you, and even bringing good out of it, where you can look back and say, praise God? Can you see that being redirected in life, maybe going in a direction that you, you weren't thinking was the way you were, you were heading? That even being rejected points us to the rejected one who gives us hope?
We read in Romans 8.28 that he works all things together for good to those who love him. The good and the bad and everything in between. So put your hope in Jesus, not the changing fortunes here on earth. Job went through probably more than anyone humanly speaking, biblically, in the Bible. In one fell swoop, you know, his kids were killed and all his possessions were taken and everything he had was gone. He even lost his health. And people came to him, people very close to him, and said, just curse God and die. And his response was, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? Do we just take the good stuff? Or is God with us in in the whole picture? Lamentations chapter 3 where we get the beautiful the beautiful words of, of of the song Great is Thy Faithfulness. Lamentations 3.22 The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. The Lord is my portion, therefore I have hope in him. It's like the movie Facing the Giants. When you've got that coach of the uh, Christian high school's football team challenging his team to look beyond the game and their losing record to Jesus. And here's what he said to him. He goes, if we win, we praise him. And if we lose, we praise him. We praise him no matter what. That's how it's got to be. Praise him no matter what. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we are so often at a loss of what to do in life because of the situation and the circumstances that we come into. And we know that you are good. We know that you are great. And we know, Lord, that, that we ought to put our hope in you. But we, we just want to acknowledge to you today that that's a tough thing for us to do. And that we cannot do that without you, Lord. So, Lord, we ask today for grace to obey grace to put our hope in you, grace to put our trust in you in every situation to be able to praise you. We pray in Jesus' name.